Talking with Tech is sponsored by Q Interactive, Pearson's iPad-based system for testing, scoring, and reporting. Experience unheard of efficiency and client engagement with 20 top tests, all delivered digitally. You can sign up for a free 30-day trial at pearsonclinical.com TWT18. Um, after that 30 days, if you want to go ahead and use it, call 1-800-627-7271 and give them promo code TWT18 to get 10% off the Q Interactive license. Uh, this is only good through the end of the year, December 31st, 2018, so try it now. Well, welcome back to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined by Chris Bouguet. How are you doing, Chris? I'm all right today. How about you? I'm doing good. It's um, it's Veterans Day, the day that we're recording this, and it's, um, it's a day off for a lot of people, but unfortunately, it's not a day off for me. <laughs> no, my, my school district did not have today off either. A lot of uh, Veterans Day assemblies and things like that. And uh, actually, I saw on Twitter today, because uh, I wasn't actually in any of the assemblies, but uh, some of the students that I work with were posting pictures or teachers were posting pictures of the students like holding the banners and things like that. It was cool. Cool. And you could see like communication devices in some of the pictures. It was awesome. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, I love um, I love when we kind of have a reason to celebrate, especially um, kind of bringing people together. Right now, uh, there's tons of fires going on in California, really close to home. And so I have families who are living in Malibu, which is where a lot of these, these wildfires are happening. And it's just so scary. The air quality is so bad. No one's going outside. And it's usually so nice. California, one of the things I love about it is I can go outside at any, any time of the year. I can just pop outside and it's never too cold. It's never too hot. But yeah, we've been staying indoors trying to, to stay safe and it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I hope everybody who's listening to this podcast is safe and has come through unscathed. Uh, there's something else that happened today. It's Veterans Day, but making making a little bit of a lighter note here is that the Toy Story 4 trailer came out. Did you did you hear about this? Have you seen this yet? No, I'm so intrigued. Well, okay. So by, by the time this airs, it'll been, have been out for a little while. So this won't be a huge spoiler for the trailer, right? But what it is, is it's got all the characters one by one holding hands and it like it shows like Woody and then it shows Buzz and they're cycling through each one holding hands and they eventually get to the you know the, the dog that's the squicky what's you call the squinky dog you know what I mean oh slinky slinky dog the slinky dog right and uh after the slinky dog uh who's holding on to his tail is a spork you know what a spork is, right? Half spoon, half fork, right? Yes. And it's got these beady eye, you know, the, the googly eyes glued onto it. And it's got arms wrapped around it made out of a pipe cleaner. You know what I mean? A pipe cleaner is on the, so there's, and he's like, I'm not a toy. Like he yells that out, right? And why am I mentioning it on this podcast? It's got me thinking like, what makes something fun to engage with, right? What makes something a toy, right? All those Toy Story toys are, are commercial toys that you buy or you get from the claw machine, you know? They're meant to be toys. But so often kids make up their own toys. They make things out of sporks and hot glue and googly eyes and pipe cleaners, you know? And it just reminded me of speech therapy, you know? Like that, that whole point that it doesn't have to be some big commercial tool. It's you that makes the fun, you know? Well, it's really funny that you mentioned pipe cleaners because I think I've shared on this podcast, I have a, a client who is obsessed with building pipe cleaner people. And what's interesting about this and what I use, I use this as an example when I'm presenting about SNUG, Spontaneous Novel Utterance Generation, um, and the importance of literacy because not only does this little guy... Um, 
create pipe cleaner people, but he has the most interesting names for them. So he calls them some like nonsense names like Biff and Sige and all these really unique names. And if he didn't have the ability to type, then he would never know the names, these clever names that he comes up with for these pipe cleaner people. Um, so I think it's just an important reminder that two things. I love the idea of anything can be engaging in a toy and just kind of thinking outside of the box or maybe following a child's lead, but also, of course, just the importance of giving kids the tools to say whatever they want to say. So today we have Aaron Sheldon as the interview, and what we talk about is CVI, cortical vision impairment. Uh, and recently I've been working with a whole team that is working with a student that has CVI. I mean, there's a bunch of students, but this one in particular, we were trying to figure out what this student's augmentative communication system should look like. And uh, what we talked about was, I mean, we, we, we tried assessments with dynamic screen devices, and we just saw that the student was not targeting at all. And it eventually made us think, like, what is he really seeing, you know? Could it be that the iPad or any sort of screen is just this big glowing light, uh, and that he's not really processing what the, what the images are on the screen? Could it be that he is seeing some images, but it's all blurry or pixelated to his view, meaning his acuity is okay, but the image that's formulating in his mind is confused? And, and so we, we started wondering more about that, and we started to doing, do some research, and, and what we kind of landed on as a strategy, potentially for him, where we're just starting with him, is this idea of visual and auditory scanning, uh, where you keep providing words in a consistent pattern and, and asking him, rather than choosing yes or no or direct selecting, hitting a button or moving a body part in a certain way that indicates that that's the one that I want. So imagine, if you will, a piece of paper that has six words on it. Uh, maybe the first word is more, the second word is go, the third word is eat, the fourth word is stop, the sixth word is uh, drink, and the last word is done, for, whatever, for, for lack of better words, right? Imagine those. And then a, the person who is working with the student might point to the first word and say, do you want more? And then give an expectant pause and wait for a while, and then point to the next one and say, do you want eat? Whatever I said was second, and I've already forgot my six words are in order. But, you know, systematically going through each one, and then when the student hears the one that he wants, he would indicate that somehow. Like I said, it could be a nodding of the head, or in this case, the kid could reach out and actually hit a button. So he could hit the button that says, that one, or that's the one, or that's it, or something like that. With the idea that eventually he could we would go on beyond those six words. You could get to, uh, it's not on this page, and, and, and eventually get to more of a pod-based system. And that's where we are right now, what we're talking about. I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, well, it sounded like pod, right? So that was yeah. the first thing that I thought about. I was like, oh, that sounds, that sounds familiar to me. Um, I'm still dying to do a pod training, by the way. Uh, it's like one of the trainings that I've been wanting to do. It's just they're hard to find. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting, this idea of auditory scanning. And I think it's really important. Actually, we had a conversation last time we recorded off air and I was sharing a case that I have that's really challenging. Um, the little girl has a progressive neurological condition and it feels like there's no real volitional movement. She can't really indicate yes, no. She can't really activate a switch. Um, she has no real volitional movement. It feels just very um, reflexive whenever, you know, she's 
she's kind of moving and she has a lot of seizures and um, you and I talked about potentially doing the auditory scanning and I just think it's it's so challenging sometimes with with these really complex cases. Um, you want to kind of make sure you're doing the best that you possibly can. But I even find myself feeling like, am I doing enough? Like, do I need to like, do I not have enough training? Um, and I feel like it's it's just challenging. So it was it was really nice to just bounce some ideas off of you, Chris. And and that's what this kind of reminds me of is um, these more complex cases that are not just kind of cut and dry. What we talked about with that student would be like, and, and again, the same student I'm working with is, well, what if we weren't sure, like, what if we didn't give enough wait time and so he didn't hit it? Or in your case, what you're describing is, how do we know what her, what her movement is that indicates that, that that's the one that she wants? And so we talked about verbal referencing, like saying, using a strategy saying, it sounds like, or it looked like you smiled when you said that, so I'm going to assume you wanted this one, which is not to say that that, that is necessarily the case, but you're, you're trying to attribute meaning to it, that maybe over time, that smile becomes more intense. Oh, because, because every time I smile, this is the thing that happens. Then it's more, it becomes more consistent. Yeah, and you have to wonder too, like, so this little girl was running around, talking, playing soccer, um, you know, so she had language. So it feels oftentimes with these kiddos and adults with progressive disease is like, you know, I, I would imagine that they're in there, right? And they can hear and they can listen and they can understand at some level what's going on. They just don't have the ability to communicate. And so that's even more, you know, heartbreaking to me because I'm like, I need to be able to like you know, give you that voice and give you that, you know, power to at least control the bare, the bare basics. Um, are you hungry? Are you hurting? Like, do you want more of that song? Do you like that toy? Um, so it's just, it's, it's really challenging. And, um, you know, I, I also shared kind of tying back into the cortical visual impairment. Uh, this little girl has severe visual impairments too. So it's like, you know, eye tracking is not an option for her and it's, yeah, it's really hard. Um, it's really hard with these with these more complex cases. Speaking of the cortical visual impairment, Chris, you mentioned some of the things that were red flags to you as far as oh wow, like maybe there's some there's a visual you know issue here going on. Um, besides just inconsistency, are there any other red flags that tell you like hmm, like maybe we need to look into the visual stuff a little bit more? Uh, yes, in that he definitely was cues in more to the auditory than presenting any sort of visual. So anything that was two-dimensional, he did not seem to gravitate towards. Um, interesting enough, when they were presenting kind of yes-no to him as, as an option, he it was on these pictures, you know? And so he would reach out and just grab the entire picture and crumble it, you know? Any 3D object, though, he was uh, much better at identifying or... I guess he's not identifying, but saying like, do you want the cup or this wooden block? You know, well, he wanted the cup because he wanted a drink, you know? And so he went right over, or we, we assumed he wanted to drink, but he reached for the cup because the wooden block is like, what is that? You know what I mean? That's mm -hmm. like, so he, uh, so three-dimensional objects appeared to be more reinforcing, which in fact, before we really started keying in on maybe using a, a pod-like system, we, we started thinking, well, could we be using three-dimensional objects as a communication system? You know, could, instead of pictures and point in using the auditory, but we said, well, that's going to be cumbersome. So uh, let's try the auditory first and then add in the, the three-dimensional objects if we need to, you know? Yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting. Um, I think that 
some of the kids that I worked with, it's like, okay, I know that there's a visual thing going on beforehand. And then I think it's a little more like easier as a clinician, like, okay, we have these visual things, but I've also worked with those kids where I'm like, you know, we know it's in our scope of practice or our, our duty to refer out. And sometimes I'm like, I just don't feel like, you know, something's off. Um, and I think, like you said, the auditory piece, when kids respond better to auditory than they do to visual. Um, and I'm so used to the opposite because I work with a lot of kids with autism and they respond really well to the visual and not so much to the auditory. So that's definitely something to, to consider as a clinician. If you are not quite sure what's going on, I really just encourage all clinicians to just refer out. Like it does not hurt to get an extra assessment that maybe wasn't necessary that says there's nothing wrong. Um, but the opposite can do a lot of harm, right? Like having kids go undiagnosed with visual impairments and hearing impairments and all these things. So I think it's really important when you have this gut feeling that something might be off to just share that with a family and try to refer out to who might be able to help. I got to say, Rachel, one of the positive aspects of this whole situation is that there was, you know, myself and the on-site speech therapist, and then we were collaborating with the case manager and then talking with the occupational therapist. And so being able to bounce ideas around as a team is one of the big benefits of working in the schools, you know, is that it's, it's, you don't have to work in a silo. You can go to other speech therapists that work in your school district and be like, look, I know you've had situations like this. Uh, I've heard you had a student like this. What did you do in these situations? And so you, you're never alone. And especially now, you can reach out beyond the school, but actually having a conversation where you all have eyes on the same student and all sharing experiences, you, you, you tend to fall on the same page that way. I make it sound like it's an accident. No, you work to be on the same page, you know? Um, uh, one other red flag that, that, that you mentioned that, that, that came out that made us think vision. Um, and of course, we did have the visual teacher with the visually impaired involved as well, especially at the IEP meeting, we were chatting with that person. But the student would not finger isolate on the iPad, reach out, knock on it, hit it with a, slap it with a palm. But when they presented him with a 3D object with a button, uh, to push a button and it made this thing go like a toy or um, like operate the shredder or something like that, at first he wouldn't reach out and finger isolate. It's so funny because I'm pointing right now at you, like I'm finger isolating. No one can see. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but they took this like little plastic ring, and it was a yellow ring. Which, um, again, I might be overgeneralizing here, but according to the vision teacher I talked to, um, a lot of kids with visual cortical visual impairment can key in on yellow, or maybe there's different preferential colors. This student seemed to key in on yellow, and and so as a preferred color, like oh well, I can target. I see this yellow ring now. And I'm going to hit the thing in between the yellow ring. And he immediately finger isolated. So he's not doing that in an iPad when we're presenting all this cool, engaging fart noises. You know what I mean? Here's a button. Press this. It's going to make it fart. Uh, no, that didn't, wasn't motivating for him. He liked it fine. Would grab my hand and, and, and in fact, would grab my hand and have me do it, which is another indicator because I could finger isolate. Mm. But to him, it made me think, yeah, he's just not seeing it, you know? If he can finger isolate over here when doing this activity, but not finger isolate over here when we're on a touch screen, that screams vision to me. Yeah. And that's just something that, you know, we have to keep in mind because it, it, I don't think when we introduce, when we introduce a high tech system to a child and we're maybe trialing or you know, doing assessment, um, I don't think my brain always goes there. Right. I think like, I think other things like, Oh, attention, motivation. Um, you know, so I think that sometimes, Sometimes it's hard because you only have a glimpse of a child, right? And so you don't have enough time to kind of see all these things unfold. But 
but yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. I like, will have to like keep that in my, my, in my brain when I'm not seeing consistency with the, um, you know, isolating a finger and activating the icons. Um, yeah, that's awesome that you have that resource too, the, the visual teacher, um, because not everybody has that. I feel like. Yeah, I, I had the great fortune of working with some awesome teachers of the visually impaired over the years. With working in assistive technology, them having technology, I mean, any technology you use to help a student with a disability is assistive technology. So for a while there, we were also doing, uh, working hand in hand with them, and, and we still do, but even more closely with teachers of the visually impaired, them through the selection process, help them with the evaluation, help them acquire the, the materials. And so I've had a great relationship with all of them over, over the years talking about, especially as iPads have come onto the scene, you know, how iPads have really changed things for people with visual impairments. It, is, it has then changed my practice because I now th- I keep it in the front of my head, like, okay, what's happening, not just with acuity wise, but what's happening with the processing uh, in the, you know, in the occipital lobe, I guess. Oh, wow. That took me back to grad school for a second. (laughs) (laughs) The occipital lobe. (laughs) You can see clearly we are not experts on this aspect of it, but we're learning. And that's why we like working with other people who are, who know this stuff. So something else about this student, when I was talking to the teacher of the visually impaired, I was like, so when I create these visuals, we should probably outline the visuals in like yellow. And she was like, no, because that's preferred. They're all going to be preferred. He might just see the same yellow ring, if you will. Maybe what you want, because that's the opposite color, is to do high contrast. Flip it so that there's a black background with white text as opposed to a white, you know, a white background with black text. Yeah, the high contrast is really powerful, especially for kids with visual impairment. And what's interesting and exciting, actually, is LAMP just came out with a high contrast option. So it's really exciting. And I don't know, are there any other systems that have the ability to do high contrast? I mean, I know it's a, it's definitely something we can do low tech. And there's a lot of resources out there for high contrast communication boards and things like that. But are there any other systems Well, none that I know of. I mean, I know like on the iPad, there's a high contrast feature. So you can invert the colors that way. And it's sort of like that, um, you know, when you turn that feature on, it's like you you invert the colors. It's everything is sort of that weird shade of blue, you know? Yeah. Um, so, So there is that possibility. But as far as another system that is designed like that, where you can just uh, turn on the high contrast mode, I'm not familiar. There, There might be, and I'm just not sure. I know. I feel like this is when I really wish Lucas was here listening or joining us because I feel like he's, that's his jam. He's like all about eye tracking and I'm sure he, he also just, I feel like is um, so on the pulse of all of the systems. I feel like he knows so much about every option out there. So we Something miss you. We, yes, we do miss you, Lucas. So one other thing to mention about visual impairment. So once upon a time, since you brought up LAMP, we had a student that uh, with a visual impairment and she would feel the edges of the table or feel the edges of any sort of communication device. And she was preschool aged. Thought, what if we started teaching her literacy right out of the box? Like, what if we, uh, so we got with the vision teacher and she gave us these braille stickers, right? And it was just a letter. Like, so for the letter G, we took this braille sticker and it was like the, the same size that was perfect size for hitting the, the cell of the lamp. We put the G over the go button and then we tested it. We said, will it still work? And sure enough, it still worked. So that, and we just did that on a bunch of different words to start, you know, with the idea that why not start teaching her that this is the, this is what G feels like, you know, in Braille. This is what D feels like for, for do, you know, this is what S feels like for stop. 
or whatever words we chose. Uh, and it was a great way to start introducing literacy. And, and, and I think even more importantly was this idea that preschool age, we're going to presume someday this girl who's got a visual impairment and is uh, at this point not verbal is going to learn this stuff. You know, uh, I think the message sent to the staff was almost more powerful than the actual strategy itself. You know, Absolutely. I have very similar situations going on with literacy with my clients. It's like I walk into a classroom or an IEP meeting and I talk about, oh yeah, we're starting to do some keyboarding. And like, they look at me like I have four heads and they're like, why, what? We're not there yet. I'm like, listen, if we always say we're not there yet, we will never be there. So I am such a big believer in incorporating literacy at a very early age. And there's a lot of really great strategies that you can start using with understanding letter correspondence and letter to sound correspondence and just matching letters and all these things that you can start doing. Actually, an app that I love is called Word Wizard. And why I love it is because you can customize your lists. Um, and there's lots of different things the app can do, but you can basically make it so that you can set it up with a QWERTY keyboard on the iPad. Um, of course, if you have a Bluetooth keyboard, that could work too. But you can have it set up so the only letters that are visible are the letters in the word. Oftentimes, I'll take a you know very functional vocabulary list. So 10 words, for example, highly motivating, um, you know, ball and cookie and go and all these words that we're targeting with the device and during our sessions. And I will incorporate a, a literacy activity and say the word is go, for example. Um, so it has two blank spaces and the only letters that are visible are G and O. And so I say, oh, like, you know, we're, we're going to spell the word go. And then I model on the dice. This actually is important to have two separate devices um, because it's a communication opportunity, right? And so it's, it's really important to be able to have a device that has, you know, the app that you're working on and then, of course, the communication device. But, you know, I'll model on the device, oh, let's spell the word go. And then I'll, you know, model on the device go. And then I'll say G, oh, and I'll model, you know, we spelled the word go. And then I'll see if the child can do it. And this one kid that I was working with, everyone didn't believe that they could do it. And I was like, listen, let's just keep trying. I really think that this is going to be successful. So we started this maybe maybe like three months ago. And I just saw him in the classroom and he's like a little whiz. He is spelling so many different words and it's unbelievable. And everyone is floored that he's able to do this. I'm like, see, like, see what happens if we just try and um, teach. Because like a lot of the kids that I work with, they're actually really motivated by letters. Kids with autism love letters. Um, so if you can use that and then incorporate it with their device, so making it highly functional, um, I just, I love that app word wizard. You also, a lot of times kids have spelling homework and things like that. And it's a really great, you can just plug in their spelling words into word wizard because you can customize lists. So it's just, it's a favorite app of mine for sure. You know, that, that when you were mentioning how you were teaching go, right. You do that first and then you do go. I wanted to come back to the student that I was mentioning with doing the auditory scanning is that that's the way I described it. I kind of left that piece out but I don't want to make that an assumption that everyone understand that's what we're doing is that you would still need to teach them. Like, I'm going to show you this, this, I'm going to say, do you want eat? But I'm going to then model that I'm eating something or I'm going to give you something to eat or this is what eating is. Nom, 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 nom. You know, you still have to teach it first before you would assume that he would be able to respond to it or maybe both. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, the other thing is I pair it with meaningful experiences, right? It's not like, and that's one of the issues that I have with spelling is that like we give kids these spelling words and it's just so out of context. And it's like, okay, cool. Spell the word, you know, trampoline. And then it's like, they spell it, but like, let's go jump on the trampoline now. You spell that word, you know? And so for go, if we spell it, then I get up and we go somewhere. We go. Exactly. You spell cookie. Like I hopefully can give you a cookie. So I just think that it's really important that we give context for why we're doing this. And, and a lot of times I think kids just don't attend because they don't get it. They're like, what is this? What are you making me do? <laughs> you know, it's just like, they don't understand the importance of spelling. They don't get why we're asking them to match letters. So at least pairing with meaningful experiences will give context to the language learning behind all these activities that we're doing. That was awesome. That's so exactly right, right? That's what education is all about. It's not just doing meaningless things for no reason. There's some meaning behind it. I I just love it. It's like one of my biggest gripes with this whole like spelling word or vocabulary list. I get the importance of it, but I just think that there's ways that we can try to make it more meaningful to the kids that we're working with, especially. But that's that's a whole other conversation. People have their own experiences or other pet peeves they have about what we're doing in education that we wish we could change or uh, ways to incorporate meaning into words. We'd love to hear about it over on the Facebook group. Yeah. If you haven't joined our group, just type in Talking With Tech and you can join our Facebook group. There's lots of awesome conversations going on in there. We'd love to have you. If you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, please do subscribe. That way you're informed every time we have a new episode that airs, you will get a notification. Um, There's nothing better than getting that notification for me. It's typically on Wednesdays and I get excited. I'm a listener of our podcast. I love going back and listening to uh, the conversations that we have before the interviews and then the interviews are always so fantastic. And I really get a lot of value out of listening to our own episodes. So please do subscribe. Rachel, I got to tell you, I'm a fan of the podcast too. I go back and listen and I actually go back and listen to old episodes too, like episodes that I've already listened to. Sometimes I go back, like I didn't hear that again, because, you know, we put out one a week, you can forget. And so I go back and listen to our, the people we've interviewed because there's, there's a lot of wisdom there that I need to just soak up, you know? Exactly. And I just love, I feel like every episode, there's just a few gems that you can take away. And um, especially some of these inspirational ones, I just, uh, I really enjoy listening to them. And I think that it's exactly the kind of inspiration sometimes that I need um, to kind of give me fresh ideas and new perspectives and think about, think about my practice in a different way. Have you noticed that some people, when we post an episode, will tag someone else in it? You know, those Facebook people, how people do that, they'll just write someone's name underneath. So you know that they're like, I've heard this and now I've thought of you and because we just had this conversation or we, uh, we share this in common. So I wanted you to share this and I just see people doing that even more. So please keep doing that. We want to share all of this wisdom. That's the reason we started the podcast. And it's just really exciting to see how much this podcast has grown. We've been doing this for over a year now. And it's just amazing how many of you guys have been reaching out to us and subscribing and downloading and listening to all of our episodes. So we're just so incredibly grateful for, for all of our listeners out there. So now we also have, Rachel, we have, we're racing. We're a race against the clock, right? I mean, uh, when this airs, there's only going to be a few weeks left before the end of the year. And we are trying to get to 100 reviews before the end of the year. So help us, help us run faster. We need a review from you or from a friend of yours that helps us get to 100. 
it's really easy. It just takes a few, a few seconds. Um, I just explained to my mom how to do it, although she still hasn't done it yet. So I have a bone to pick with her. Um, <laughs> but that's how simple it is. You just go on to iTunes and hit ratings and reviews and you can leave a, a however many stars you like. And we love hearing what you guys have to say and what you guys think of the podcast. So please tell us what you think. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you would love to see. Give us ideas on who you'd love to hear from. If you have anybody that is in your mind that you think would be a great interview, we love getting interview ideas. Um, we just can't tell you how excited we are to, to get people contacting us saying, oh, I think this person would be good for an interview because, um, yeah, and there's lots of people out there doing really cool things in the AAC world and we want to know about them. So just, just let us know if you have any ideas for interviews. Before this interview and part of this interview is all about talking about audio, right? And podcasts are audio. So before we head in the interview, we want to take an opportunity to give a shout out to Michaela. Michaela is our audio engineer who does all of our editing and, and hears us uh, make mistakes and fixes it all and makes it nice, sound nice and smooth for all of you. She is really working hard behind the scenes for you to save you time, you know? So you're not just listening to us uh, ramble about something. She'd be like, ah, you don't need that. Cut it out. So Michaela, thank you. Yes, we can't thank Michaela enough. She, uh, if without Michaela, this ship would, would sink. And I just, I have to personally thank Michaela because I can't tell you how many times she's probably edited out the ums and you knows and likes and all these things that just kind of come up in natural, spontaneous speech. And she's just, uh, she's fantastic. So yes, I'm so excited to, to have her on our team. Thanks, Michaela. So without further ado, let's head into Chris's interview with Aaron Sheldon. Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here today. I'm so excited to talk to Aaron Sheldon. Aaron, you and I have um, walked in the same circles for a while. I know there was this one time in Canada where I came to present and you had just left, or maybe you were coming the next day and I had just left and we just <laughs> kept missing each other. And, and, and now I get, because of this podcast, I get to actually talk with you. So thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Um, so tell people who don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about you, yourself, your history, like how you got involved with AAC. Uh, well, because primarily I'm a parent. Um, I have a 15-year-old who has Angelman syndrome, um, and very and she's complex for even a kid with Angelman syndrome. So non-speaking, cortical visual impairment, very poor acuity, auditory processing, lots of motor planning, lots of medical issues. So, so she's a complicated kid. And before she was born, I was a union and community organizer. So my job was to notice that a whole bunch of people individually had a problem and that maybe the best solution was a collective one. 
rather than have everybody try to solve their own individual issue. And so as Maggie entered the school system and as we were trying to figure out AAC, I just kept noticing that everybody else was asking the same questions we were. And so I went back to graduate school and just my whole idea was I could find the collective answers and bring them back to my um, community, primarily of families. Um, But now I work probably with more school teams um, doing more professional development for speech therapists and, and educators than I do actually with families. But I wear a bunch of hats. I, I'm part of, um, I'm the CEO of a parent organization in Ontario called Inclusion Ontario. You can see our website, inclusionontario.ca. So we advocate for inclusive education. I work for Assistaware, creating materials for educators and speech therapists and, and all of us who are communication partners to AAC users. Yeah, and I also provide a lot of professional development. Erin, you said you went back to school. Did you go for speech? No, um, education, special education. Gotcha, so okay. Med. And I literally chose my program because I had two small children. I chose my program and my faculty based on the one that was off campus and had easy parking. <laughs> that was how I chose, because uh, I, I had also looked at psychology and a few others, but nope, they were, they were right in the heart of the campus and I didn't have time for that. I needed a place where I could zip in and out so, while I was in school. So you mentioned that your daughter has cortical vision impairment. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means and how that manifests? Yeah. So we knew even when she was a baby, when she was just a few weeks old, I actually put all my baby books aside. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to compare her to what the baby books say she should be doing because already at even just a few weeks old, she didn't do things like try to make eye contact while she was nursing. She didn't like visually respond to things. When she was a baby, even at a year old, to get her attention, she didn't respond to sound or to sight. You'd have to like get way down at her level and be just inches from her face before you'd get any kind of response. Um, and it just always seemed like her world was only maybe as big as her fingertips. Like she didn't seem to see anything past her fingertips. She didn't respond to anything past her fingertips. And she was assessed, her, her vision was assessed as a toddler at about 15 months old. And it turns out that it was a little bit dated what happened. They presumed that her vision was two standard deviations from the mean and her development was two standard deviations from the mean and therefore they were consistent and she didn't need any vision support. Whoa, okay. I guess this I know, is which, 15 years ago, right? So Yeah, 15 years ago in a rural area and and we didn't know that we should question that. And it wasn't until she was about 7 years old that I just coincidentally met a vision teacher who observed her and said, I just need to talk to you about your daughter. Do you know she's blind? And I was like, no, are you kidding? No, she she can see. She just won't wear glasses. And he said, no, you really need to get her vision assessed. You need her to be, she needs to be assessed for cortical visual impairment. He said, she just has all the behaviors of a blind student. So the kinds of things that we saw at that point that we did not know were cortical visual impairment were things like in the classroom, she would pick up her iPad, open up the camera, and would use that to look around the classroom. She didn't directly look at her teacher. She didn't directly look at her educational assistant. Sometimes she would put the forward-facing camera on, that FaceTime camera on her iPad, and she would watch things with her back turned to it. She'd watch it over her shoulder. But she wouldn't turn and look at it directly. She didn't make eye contact. She always looked like she was looking at like your hairline or at the side of your face rather than Um, directly at your face. And if you tried to put something in front of her, she always turned her head away. 
we could just never get her to look at things. And so it was like, we were always chasing her eye high gaze. We were always trying to keep moving the things and we just couldn't get her to look at them. And then we discovered that she could watch things like videos. She could watch anything that was moving, um, but that you had to present it kind of slowly and to the side and to one particular side and she would notice it and then she could look. But if something quickly came into her, her like frame of vision, um, she couldn't look at it or she wouldn't seem to notice it. Hmm, that's, uh, that's interesting. So if, if someone's listening to this right now and they're like, okay, wait, the, I'm describing this. Um, what is CVI? I mean, what, what is actually happening in the brain and with the eyes? Because it's not acuity, right? It's something that's happening in the actual brain. Can you describe that for me? Exactly. Yeah. So, so low vision acuity is the eyes as a mechanical organ, the, the mechanism of the eyes themselves. It's how the eyes see. And so if if there's strabismus where the eyes aren't um, oriented correctly, if there's astigmatism, if there's a slight misshaping, then you get a vision issue. Cortical visual impairment is the nerves, the, the, the connection to the brain that goes to the eyes. So that's where the disruption is. It's actually a neurological issue. It's not a vision issue. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's part of the neurological disorder. And so like the biggest risk factor for cortical visual impairment is students with a developmental delay with a neurological disorder and with epilepsy. But when you see those three combinations, it's basically a way that their neurological disorder is disrupting their vision because it's the nervous system of the eyes. And so it's the brain's ability to kind of process what it's seeing. So let, can we break that down just for a second? Because let me see if, if I kind of describe it. You know, the best way I learn things is to maybe talk about it and then you go, yeah, that's it or not uh -huh. exactly, Chris. So I think about like my eyes or someone's eyes as getting the raw data, like pixels, if you will, on the screen, right? And so the raw data is coming into my eyes, but then my brain does the processing of what I'm actually seeing. I'm, I'm seeing a laptop in front of me. I'm seeing my fingers in front of me. The reason I'm seeing those is not because of my eyes necessarily. They're processing the raw data it's my brain that's looking at those and actually putting an image together it's uh it's like pushing all the pixels together and saying okay that's what i'm formulating and is that where the breakdown occurs is in that that processing trying to formulate what the picture is they're seeing maybe shapes but it's not really processing what those shapes might be is my close yeah and they might only be seeing certain colors like red and, and yellow and black um, or black against white, they might not be seen with any depth. So that's definitely a huge issue with my own daughter where imagine if as you were looking out across the room, you couldn't tell what of those shapes you're looking at is a foot away from you and what is 20 feet away from you. If it all just looked like a flat canvas. Um, I think that's the kind of challenge that our kids seem to be looking at. Or if you look across a room, like look across any busy class Classroom and there's visually so much raw data there to be able to separate that out and to see that what I'm looking at is posters and a word wall across the room and to be able to separate that from my teacher um, and the windows and, and all of that sort of thing. But that's, I think, what our kids are dealing with if they have CBI. So you, you mentioned the depth perception thing, and I've definitely seen students that, that are similar to that, where let's say it's a curb, for instance, and so we're walking and we get to a curb and the student might take 
while to navigate that curb or even just a line in the cement, you know, is, wait, is that, is, exactly. there, is there a depth per se? Like, is, is there a drop off here or not? I'm not sure. Um, and so you can see this hesitancy and would that be another red flag that would be like, hmm, something's going on there with, with, with the- Absolutely. Yeah. So then imagine that you're seeing shapes you're seeing lines, but you can't tell what's the step down or what's the change from carpet to tile or, or even, you know, the circle time carpet that, that you just really struggle with that. So, and also kids with CVI, their eyes are really drawn to movement and movement can be a lot of different things. So movement is, is things moving, but there's also things that have like the quality of movement. So even laminated materials, that shiny, glossy laminate has the quality of movement because as you move it, it has that glare, it has that reflection of light. And so our students with CVI, they might be looking at this glossy laminated thing, but what they're seeing is the movement of light across the laminate. They're not actually seeing what's behind it. Not seeing the symbols or whatever's underneath. So that kind of brings us to the next question. Since this podcast is about AAC, and so often AAC systems are set up with visuals, uh, what are the considerations if you have a student who, who has CVI, what kind of impact would you be looking at for AAC or what would you be considering with AAC? Well, most of how we think about AAC is what you'll hear, like best practice. It's supposed to be however many symbols the student can see and what they can touch. So that's kind of our shorthand idea. Like, for example, how many visuals, how many symbols would be on the screen in front of them. Um, and there's a few ways that that's going to really impact our kids. One they may be able to see a lot of visual symbols more easily than they can see things like photographs. But we may have held off on AAC because we were waiting for them to recognize photographs. But if you have cortical visual impairment, chances are you actually struggle with looking at photographs and being able to separate the foreground from the background. You might really struggle with photos of people's faces to be able to make sense of that and understand that's a photo. You might be someone who needs symbols and really visually distinct symbols more than other kids, but we have may not offered you AAC because you're not yet doing things like photo recognition. And so that's, that's just one way that it impacts it. People may have done that, but you're not saying that's a good thing. Right, like holding oh, no, off on the. No, no, I'm not saying <laughs> yes, no, no. I just, I would say that's one of the most common. So, like, I was in a school in New York, and the speech therapist said, you know, the family really wants us to start AAC, but this student is so low functioning, he can't even recognize photos of his own family. So, how is he ever going to be able to recognize a symbol if he can't even recognize photos of his own family? And they had never, the school team had never considered cortical visual impairment as an issue. And I would say this was a student who had one of the most severe cases of AAC that I had actually encountered just in classroom observations. And so, the assumption was until he gets to this readiness point, we're going to keep working on photos. But what they actually needed to do was, was move to AAC much more quickly. And that's, that's actually the biggest issue, I think, with CVI and AAC is we can't hold kids' language hostage to their vision. If we're thinking of AAC as what a student can look at, and we're thinking that the way they access AAC is by looking, once we understand they have cortical visual impairment, then we might say, oh, well, they only can handle one symbol at a time, 
or they can only handle red and white and black and really high contrast situations or red and yellow and black. And so while we're working on their vision, we're going to hold off on AAC. And, and I think that's the most common thing I see happening in our field right now is that, well, she's still learning to look and we're getting our vision therapy mixed up with our AAC because we're making this assumption that we have to be able to see our AAC to be able to use it. And so we're like, we're not modeling with kids, um, that sort of thing, because we're assuming that, well, this student, because of where their vision is, they're still learning to match objects. And so we haven't introduced AAC. So, okay, so a couple of things just to maybe clarify for people. CVI is trainable, right? It can get better with, with therapy and with training. It, it, because it's not a, an acuity issue, you can actually make improvements, right? Yes, yes. And, and we would expect that even with, without special support, kids, their CVI is going to improve over time, but it can improve much more significantly if we intervene and recognize it um, for what it is and, and provide the right support. So if, if CVI is, is trainable and can get better uh, and we don't want to hold off on AAC, what strategies should, should professionals and families be looking at? What should they be trying to do? I think we need to think about AAC that you can access without looking at it. We need to build a foundation for language through a different access method than visual, assuming that over time they're going to be able to see it. Um, so we need to think about what, what AAC can they access rather than what symbols can they see. And that's where we do strategies like um, partner-assisted scanning, where what we're going to do is focus on a different input method. We're going to focus on things like the, the auditory channel. We're going to build their language development auditorily with providing that access through auditory scanning, through partner-assisted auditory scanning, so that they learn, for example, the pathways to their AAC even before they see it. So can, can, you, can you describe that a little bit, Erin? So like, um, let's say I'm a, a person working with somebody who has CVI. I want to do partner-assisted scanning. What does that actually look like? Like I know the, the term, let's say I know the term, but what do I actually do? So you would find, a, so you would select an AAC system um, that kind of supports partner-assisted scanning. And my, I think, I, I would say the one that's most designed for that is POD, the POD system, just because of the way that the branch starters are set up. So for example, you see that your student that you want to provide partner-assisted scanning to um, is upset about something. And you would say, I think something's wrong. So you would reflect back what you hear from the student, and then you would open up their something's wrong category and you would start listing what you see inside there. Um, so that's something we do with my daughter all the time. You know, Maggie, I see that something's wrong. Um, my first question for her is going to be, is it too loud? Maybe it's too bright, because those are two things that are just really big barriers for her, noise and light. I think it's too loud, and so I'm going to uh, get the room to quiet down. Or I think it's too bright, I'm going to turn the light off. Hmm, I'm looking at you, I can see that there's still something wrong, you're still showing me that something's wrong. I wonder if it's this. I wonder if it's that. And I'm just going to start going through her options so that she develops that understanding that something's wrong is associated with specific messages. And right now she's just listening for them. But as her vision improves, that's going to be the same order 
that those same messages will be available in her AAC as her vision improves and she can directly access them. Awesome. That's exactly what I was thinking is that, so you're not presenting them in some sort of random order. That's how they're listed in the pod book. And so you're going one sequentially so that she gets them in that same order and, and has then predictable later uh, goes, okay, when I can see these now, oh, I'm used to this. I've been, I've been see, I've been hearing this pattern. Now I can see this pattern and it all kind of gels. Is that the idea? That's exactly it. And that's where I most kick myself because we didn't recognize my own daughter's CVI um, for so many years. We learned how to do things like verbal referencing where we'd say, oh, I think something's wrong. And we'd start problem solving what it could be. But we weren't using an AAC system as the foundation of what we were doing. And so we would offer options in a bunch of different orders. And I might think of things that I was offering and her aide at school might think of something else and her dad might offer them in a completely different order. And so I, that just wasn't a very effective way to help her develop that foundation of language. But now that we've got an AAC system in place, we can follow the pathways in the AAC. We can follow the order in the AAC. And we can start, as we start modeling, as students' vision improves, you know, it'll be that same predictable location in their system. Awesome. That is awesome. So a couple quick follow-up questions there, if you don't mind sharing about your daughter. First, my daughter's name is Maggie, too. So we oh, have awesome. common there. Um, let me ask. You, you said you started and you weren't doing it in a predictable way. You didn't have this. What turned the corner for you? How did you learn about uh, partner-assisted scanning? And how did you learn about pod? And how did you learn about um, <laughs> uh, verbal referencing? Oh. <laughs> well, okay. So I learned about verbal referencing when she was two from a book called How to Talk So Your Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. Okay. And it was this lovely parenting book. There's millions of copies sold. It's one of those New York Times best-selling parenting books. And all it did was it said, you know, so often when we see children being upset or children are rejecting something, we get into an argument with them or insist on something without helping them get their message heard first. And so it just teaches regular parents that reflective strategy of you don't, your child doesn't have enough words yet to say what they need to say. So you're going to say it for them, reflecting back what you see, and then you're going to say. So I would say things like, okay, Maggie, it's time for us to go home. Oh, you're telling me you do not want to go home. You have just dropped to the ground. You're saying, I don't want to go home ever. I'm sorry, honey. We still have to go home. <laughs> right. So, so I consider that a form of, of verbal referencing. And that was just something I learned from just an ordinary ordinary parenting book. And that's just been an incredibly helpful thing because it's really taught me to listen to her, to really think about what is she clearly communicating and can I state it out loud? And if I state it out loud, can that help her shape her own behavior so that she understands why I'm interpreting her the way she is? Um, that kind of thing. So that's verbal referencing. Um, when we introduced AAC, we went through several systems. We tried many different things. Um, Maggie was in fourth grade when we uh, started with Proloquitigo. And we were using a lot of masking to help her learn the location. She was having a lot of success. And at the end of grade six, you know, she was using it at school. It was really exciting. At the end of grade six, the new crescendo vocabulary came out. And it was so much more robust. And we loved it. And it was just a lot more fun for modeling. And Maggie started to 
just seemed to reject her AAC, but at the same time, she was starting middle school. There were some, some mean girl issues happening. There were some girls who just stared at her when she went to talk with her device. And I thought part of what was happening is she would rather be silent than be the freak who talks with an iPad. Mm -hmm. That was part of what was happening. And so we were really slow to figure out. But what had happened was we increased, significantly increased the complexity, the visual complexity of her AAC. She went from having a grid size that maybe could have held 60, but actually only had about 35 cells filled to a grid size of like 80. And we just assumed that she would be able to follow that. She would, you know, everybody said, use the most symbols you can, make it as robust as possible. And I thought, you know, we're going we're gonna to go with the system that, she, you know, the vocabulary that she'll be able to use down the road and she'll just figure it out. But she didn't. And I think that it took us a long time to realize we had made it so visually complex that she just couldn't see it anymore. And, and the, the old landmarks with the masking that we had done before and the really high contrast colors we had used and that sort of stuff without realizing it, we'd made it visually a lot more accessible. And uh, visually, oh, gotcha. You made the previous system uh, more accessible than the new system, which was less accessible. Exactly. And I just kind of thought, you know, we were going to a better vocabulary. We'd figured out, but I didn't understand enough about her CVI at the time. Can I also throw in there that it sounds like the motor plans changed where, where, mm -hmm. where her, she was used to the buttons where they were, her, where her words were. Suddenly they all shifted and with crescendo, I guess it's trying to keep it in a close proximity, but it wasn't exactly the same. So I would imagine that is two things that changed, not just uh, yes. uh, the visual complexity, but also where the buttons were. Yeah, and my thought was, well, she's still an emergent user. She's still developing those motor plans. Let's change it now mm -hmm. to a system that's going to have a lot more words rather than have her spend more time on a vocabulary that was a lot more limited and then have to make that change later. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, it was one of those well-intentioned things that we all talked about and we all made the agreement to do, but because we didn't understand her CVI, we, we just sort of made some mistakes. And what happened was because she wasn't directly accessing it and she wouldn't even look at it, I started just accidentally... I didn't know it was called partner-assisted scanning. Um, I just started putting my finger on different buttons and saying, I wonder if you're saying this or this. Are you considering this? I think you're telling me you want something different. And then I would just watch her for a response. And I later learned that there's actually a word for that. And it's called partner-assisted scanning. But with partner-assisted scanning, we go in the same order every time so they can build the predictability. And I wasn't doing that. I was just kind of reflecting. I think you're saying you don't like this, you know, as opposed to going in a consistent order every single time. So as I, as I reached out to say, okay, what am I doing wrong? Um, as her vision teacher came in and for the first time did a really detailed cortical visual impairment screening, we discovered that her CVI was much more significant um, than anyone had guessed. And she's phase two CVI. And the vision teacher said, I think she can only see four symbols per page. We just need to change her AAC to have only four symbols on the screen at a time. 
And then I was like, wow. whoa, wait a second. Can you imagine? I mean, right. I mean, it's like, right. it, you can, I can't really imagine an AAC system that would do that. But that's when I realized we're trying to build an AAC system that she can see rather than what's the AAC system that she can access. And as her vision improves and as she learns the motor plan, you know, what are all the multiple ways that she could access an AAC system mm -hmm. over time? So when did you move on to Pod? Is, it, is that what you're using now? We're, we're using a version of Pod. Um, oh, only in the last year. Yeah. It's only in the last year that we've actually gotten a lot more consistent um, and, and really figured this out. I think that our timing with this is really in sync with the timing in the field. I think that... Um, if you look around now, there's a lot of teachers for the visually impaired asking a lot of questions about kids' AAC systems. There's a lot of speech therapists trying to figure this out. And we don't, as a field, have really good um, resources and materials and kind of consensus yet. You know, we don't have that AAC agreements yet on um, AAC for, uh, for students with CVI. I think it's emerging, but I think we're all still very much in a let's try to figure this out. So a trial and error sort of part. Um, let me ask, are there certain, what is, what, with what we do know, are there certain do's and don'ts you wouldn't you would do with CVI? Like definitely do this and definitely don't do that. I would say the, the biggest do is do figure out an AAC system that builds that foundation for language. Don't hold back on AAC and don't hold back on developing that foundation for language until the child has the vision to see it. Whatever AAC system you select, think about motor planning. Think about how things like color can be an anchor, whether you're using something like the Fitzgerald key because, you know, those different colors for the different parts of speech. Think about how, how kids with CVI can see some colors better than others. It's called their visual preferences. So let's use color as that anchor um, to help key symbols really pop out. Um, we might need to change the color systems that we're using on students' AAC. We want to think about the contrast between the symbol itself and the background of the cell. Um, we might want to use that background of the cell, have that be a really high contrast um, with the symbol itself. Uh, we might want to consider high contrast symbols, like the board maker high contrast symbols, um, because they they have such bright, bold visuals, and they're so um, they're so visually distinct from each other. Um, so think about that, because so many of our symbol systems, the symbols look really similar, and especially if they're in a grid display, it's really difficult to distinguish them. So we really need to think about how we're using. Um, color. And what we might find is as we're doing things like partner-assisted scanning, we might say, oh, I really like this. Like is this pink symbol here. Or it's time for us to go. Go is the green arrow on the pink background. Gotcha. And so what we do is start teaching kids, notice the color, notice the salient features of that individual one. We're going to teach them what those cues are and how to use them as a symbol. So even if they never get to a point where they can actually see the detail of the symbol, they know where that green one is on the pink background and they know that that means go. That's fantastic. You're describing what the symbol looks like so that they can key in on those colors or shapes or uh, what they can see. That's, that's fantastic. Exactly. 
well, we want to keep really consistent locations too, which I think you were already getting at with the motor planning. So that, that those key symbols are always in the same spot. One of the symptoms actually of CVI is if we see kids only using a certain area of their AAC, that might tell us that, for example, they see really well from the right lower side, but not from the left. And so the symbols that they're using are the ones that they can see the best. Yeah, okay, that totally makes sense. Let me ask you, is there other resources out there that people can kind of go to to learn what they should do? Yeah, I really like Deanna Wagner is a speech therapist in Arizona, and she has two CVI AAC tips um, that she's posted on the AAC Intervention website. That's Carolyn Musselwhite's um, AAC Intervention website. So I think we can put that in the show notes. Yeah. And there's also, there's a lot of pod resources that are really useful. So there is a speech therapist out of Australia. Um, I'm blanking on what the name of her resources are, but she has these wonderful one page um, handouts like on things like partner assisted scanning. So the interactivespeech.com website in Australia has these pod focused handouts. So they have a Facebook page, um, but they have their pod materials, their pod support materials um, include like a one-page handout on verbal referencing and a one-page handout on partner-assisted scanning. And they're really like my go-to resources to show those to folks. And the other thing they have is part of those handouts are they take each grant starter um, within Podbook, like let's go, or I have an idea, or commenting, and they walk you through how that branch starter, how that, how those messages progress um, so that you can really understand it. And that's that predictable sequence of messages that are just so helpful. So even if you're not using Pod, it's really helpful to read those and get a sense of, oh, that's what they mean by that predictable sequence. And that's what builds that foundation for the language that kids can directly access later. Oh, I think that'll be so helpful because uh, people, I think, they, they have an, an idea of what some of these words mean, but it, 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 they need some more resources to really understand what it would look like if they were trying to do the intervention using them, you know? And so any exactly. resources you can give is, is great. Um, let me ask you here, what are you curious about now? What is your next step in AAC? What have you been trying to investigate? I would say the way that movement has been so important to my own daughter vision. I am really trying to figure out how to capitalize that and the way that video has been. And so, for example, it's been really powerful for her when she has like screencasted videos of how to use her AAC system. Because if it's a video, the visual keeps moving. Um, so, you know, we've used apps like Explain Everything and that sort of thing where the app allows us to pretend to like animate her AAC screen so she can see how we're we're navigating. And what I would most like for her now is to have high quality videos of actual AAC users actually using their AAC to communicate. I feel like at 15, she's made it really clear that it's really helpful that people are modeling for her. But I think she's really drawn to people who aren't modeling for a teaching moment, but they're actually communicating using AAC. And so if I could find or if we as a, a professional field could support the development of high quality videos of AAC users speaking for themselves and not just speaking for themselves in the way that you often see it on YouTube where it's a pre-recorded message yeah, right. that's been planned ahead of time, but where you can actually see the navigation. I feel like that would just be incredibly uh, powerful for her and would, would, would really 
strengthen her from, from where I think she is right now as a teenager. All right. Well, you heard it here, listeners. This is a challenge. Can you create videos like this, right? I mean, that's the people who listen to this podcast, I think, are people that could actually make those, you know? So I think that's an awesome. That's be awesome to have those. And I know uh, I, having more videos of users out there just in general, right? Um, right. Ha having experiences helps paint a picture. We talk about this strategy a lot. Helps paint a picture for the people that, that don't, like, let me get this whole team on board. This is the direction we're heading. Let me show you this video because this video of this person is very similar to the to the student that you're working with. So this gives you mm -hmm. a so, and I can see that from a user perspective as too. It's like showing like you could be like this student, or you could in, you could talk with the student. Why don't we Why don't we try and reach out to this person who has a YouTube channel, and and you guys could meet. You know, that's that's a kind exactly. Of can you imagine a world where AAC users could like go online and talk to other AAC users, and emergent users could be observing, you know, more more experienced ones? And I just think that. I think that that's the biggest missing piece in her AAC plan right now is not having more competent AAC users as a role model. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been awesome. I cannot wait to share this with a bunch of teachers already that I'm working with. Like, you got to listen to this. This person explains it all to you right now in this uh, interview. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Oh, and one other thing that we can share as a resource is the handout uh, Gretchen Hanser and I presented on CVI and AAC at Closing the Gap in September. And we can post the handout for that um, as a resource for people as well. Awesome. We will definitely do that. We'll put it in the show notes. This is Chris Bouguet for Talking With Tech, and thank you so much. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.